military campaigns and battles. Perhaps you've read a passage like this in your personal devotions and thought, what what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, How can I apply this to myself today? I don't expect to have to go into battle. How is this relevant to me? Well, we should be clear, first of all, that God does intend that we should learn from passages like this. All scripture is given for our instruction. And we can apply these things to ourselves today. Just two uh, examples from the New Testament to demonstrate this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul recounts an incident from uh, Israel's time in the wilderness. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, Now all these things, Israel in the wilderness, happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, God is instructing us here today through what happened to his people in ancient times in Israel. Or Romans chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes there, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience or perseverance and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So notice what Paul is doing there. He's quoting from Psalm 69, which is a psalm that David wrote. And Paul is telling us two things. First of all, he says that what David wrote about his experience and his thoughts wasn't just about himself, but in some way it previewed, it foreshadowed what Christ would experience, what Christ would think. And second, Paul tells us that all of this is for us to learn from. More than that, it's to give us patience and comfort and hope. And so that's what I want us to do with this passage tonight, to use this as an example of how we can see Christ uh, in the Old Testament, uh, in these passages about military campaigns and battles, and so that we can get comfort and uh, strength and, and hope for ourselves. I want us to see that David's battles and victories here are a trailer, a preview of Christ's battles and victories. And so the title for this uh, study tonight is Christ's Ultimate Victory Previewed in David's Defeat of the Amalekites. Christ's Ultimate Victory Previewed in David's Defeat of the Amalekites. And three main points to consider tonight. And the first is this, that Christ will cause all his enemies to be forgotten except in the songs and histories of his victories. Christ will cause all his enemies to be utterly forgotten, except when his people are singing about Christ's victories. That's what we see in the history of the Amalekites. Because this 
battle here that David has with the Amalekites, it wasn't an isolated incident in Scripture. You can actually trace the Amalekites and their involvement with Israel all the way through the Old Testament. They went back a long way. And I believe that we can see here the Holy Spirit demonstrating this bigger point that we want to make about Christ and his enemies. The Holy Spirit demonstrates Christ's future victories in the victories that his people gain over the Amalekites, as we see through the Old Testament. So let's just have a a, a quick um, uh, zoom through some of Old Testament history so that we can uh, get a sense of this. I'll I'll mention um, some scripture passages. We won't turn to them for sake of time. The first thing we notice is that Israel and Amalek were, in fact, related. Both Israel and Amalek were descended from Abraham. And we see this in the first mention of Amalek in Genesis chapter 36. Genesis 36 verse 12 tells us, Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So you remember that Esau was Jacob's brother. So Amalek is in fact the great nephew of Jacob. From Jacob, all the Israelites were descended, and from Amalek came all the Amalekites. So Israel and Amalek were related, both descended from Abraham. Fast forward on 400 years or so from there, and we see Amalek making a cruel unprovoked attack on Israel. So Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land. We get to Exodus chapter 17 and we read that Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Deuteronomy 25 gives a more detail about that. Uh, It tells us that Amalek attacked Israel from the rear where the defences were weakest, where the women, the children, the stragglers, the weak and sick would be. Uh, Elsewhere it's described as an ambush, completely unprovoked. Scripture says Amalek did not fear God. They had no thought for their shared humanity or the shared heritage that they had with Israel. A cruel, callous, unprovoked attack. And so as a result, God himself declares war on Amalek. Exodus 17, chapter 17, verse 14, is very significant. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner, It's the name Jehovah Nissi, for he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so there we have the first indication that this is about more than Amalek. The Lord didn't say this about every nation that ever attacked Israel. But I believe that he's using Amalek here as a a type. They were characteristic in some way of all the enemies of God's. And God will show in Amalek what he will do to all those who stand against him. 
See, the reality is that behind Amalek, there is a greater power, one with an implacable hatred of God and his people, God's sworn enemy. And this, in fact, takes us back right to the beginning, right to the fall, to the serpent in the garden, to Satan himself. And you remember that God said there, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what we see in Amalek and their cruel, unprovoked attack upon Israel uh, is just in a microcosm, uh, the conflict between Christ and Satan. So God himself declares war on Amalek. Go on a few years, and we find God conscripting a pagan prophet to foretell victory for Christ. So Israel's still in the wilderness. They're getting closer to Canaan. Balak, who is one of the local kings, he fears the threat that Israel posed to his nation. And so, you remember this, he engages Balaam, who is a kind of prophet for hire. And he uh, promises to pay him vast amounts of wealth so that Balaam will pronounce curses on Israel. But Balaam is unable to do it. He opens his mouth to curse and God compels him to pronounce blessing on Israel instead. And Balaam makes several prophecies. They're recorded for us in Numbers 23 and 24. And Amalek, in fact, features in two of them. Remember that one of the prophecies has these memorable words. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Referring very clearly to our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah to come. And immediately after that, Balaam adds, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. In other words, in some sense, Amalek was at that time one of the the great among the nations, maybe the first to rise against Israel. But they are going to perish. In the third prophecy, Balaam again, he's talking about Israel, And then he says, his king, Israel's king, shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, Agag was the name given to all the kings of the Amalekites, a bit like the name Pharaoh was used for all the kings of Egypt, or Caesar, for those who ruled in Rome. And so, here Balaam is saying, Amalek, Agag, their king, they might be the top dog now. They might be the first among the nations. They might be the big noise in that land. But their day is coming. The king who will arise in Israel will have the victory over them. So this pagan prophet, Balaam, foretells victory for Christ. And then we go on another few hundred years. Um... Amalek were a constant thorn in Israel's side all the way through the period of the judges. Uh, Time and again you see Amalek allying themselves with different ones of Israel's enemies. And then we come to the time of Saul. 
And 1 Samuel 15 records how God sends Saul to execute judgment on Amalek, just like he said uh, back in the book of Exodus. Now Saul is at the height of his strength here. He's commanded to destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites and everything they have. And though he has every opportunity to obey, Saul rebels. He keeps the best of the livestock. He spares King Agag. And for this disobedience, God rejects Saul from being king. And remarkably, it's in fact Samuel the prophet who takes a sword and executes King Agag. So that was Saul in his strength, failing to obey the Lord. But by contrast, in the passage we read tonight, David and his men are at their weakest, but they go out against Amalek and they succeed. We read in verse 14, David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men, might be translated lads or boys, who rode on camels and fled. It was an almost total victory for David. And indeed, if you look on through Old Testament history, Amalek seemed to be almost spent as a fighting force again after that. We don't read of any uh, more significant um, attacks from Amalek until we turn to the book of Esther. So there we read of Haman, who's the enemy of the Jews, and his audacious plot to destroy the Jews throughout the whole of the Persian Empire. And you remember how God brought about this uh, remarkable delivery through Mordecai and Queen Esther, leading to Haman being hung on the gallows, which he'd built for Mordecai, and the Jews throughout all the empire defeating all those who came up against them. And you might say, well, what's this got to do with Amalek? Well, if you read the account in Esther closely, you'll notice that Haman is referred to repeatedly as Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite. And so what scripture is doing here is identifying Haman as a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So here they are again. The Amalekites are at it again after Israel, their ancient enemy. But what's the story in the book of Esther? For generations, the Amalekites have attacked Israel. For generations, the Lord has had war with Amalek. But now, with Haman's downfall, it's over. That's it. Amalek disappears from the historical record. Their memory has been blotted out except in the Bible histories, the songs and histories of the victory of Christ. And this is how it will be For all the enemies of Christ and the gospel. Psalm 37 has these words. For yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. Indeed you will look carefully for his place. Search the archaeological record. Search the history. It will be no more. Or Psalm 9. 
You've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. Oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memories have perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. Just think of it. When did names like uh, Caesar or Nebuchadnezzar or Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary as she was called, when did they last give you an, an anxious night? They're irrelevant to us, aren't they? At one time, these uh, people were, were enemies of the gospel of the Lord's people. But now their time is past, their power is gone, we scarce give them a thought. And in just the same way, the time is coming when names like Putin, Kim Jong-un, Hamas, names which so many dread now, will become nothing at all. And the same is true of every ideology and, and scheme that, that threatens the gospel and the church. You know, we're concerned now about woke ideology, about conversion therapy bans, about evolutionary teaching. Uh, so much that threatens the gospel. But Christ will get the victory over all these things. And one day, they will not be remembered, except in the history books. And when we sing of how Christ has defeated them all. So, Christ will cause all his enemies to be forgotten, except in the songs and histories of his victories. The second thing I want us to notice is that Christ will bring the most glorious gains out of the most grievous losses. And here we're looking a bit more closely at uh, this chapter that we read together. The beginning of the chapter, we see David at the lowest point in his life. If you look back over the, the chapters before, you'll see he's been in exile, uh, away from Israel for a year and four months. He's been on the run from persecution from Saul. He's been living a double life among the Philistines, pretending to have turned against Israel. Just four days before this, he'd been forced to march out alongside the Philistines as if he were going to go into battle against Israel. You could imagine the emotional strain of him thinking, how am I going to get out of this? Then God gives a remarkable delivery. They're sent home. And then this. They get back home. And they discover that home is no more. The whole of the city has been burned to the ground. Wives, children, all his possessions taken by the Amalekites. And we can scarcely imagine the, the depth of sorrow that verse 4 describes. Weeping until they had no more power to weep. That wasn't all. His own people turn against him. David was the leader. They blame him for the situation. You might call this David's Gethsemane. But we see something remarkable in verse 6. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David drew near to God, and out of this grievous loss... God brought about a most glorious gain. David leads his men in the chase. 
600 men go with him, 200, four behind, worn out after days on the march without rest. So David has just 400 men with him when he comes to this Amalekite camp where they're just spread out across the country. There are so many of them. And they then fight from twilight until evening the next day, 24 hours of fighting, with the result that only 400 boys are left who escape on camels. A truly remarkable victory. But look at what is achieved. Verse 18. This was, these verses were what drew my attention to this passage. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they'd taken from them. David recovered all. Everything that had been lost was recovered. And not only that, all the spoils of war that the Amalekites had gathered through the whole of their raids from the Philistine and elsewhere, David took that as his own. And I put it to you that this foreshadows the victory that Christ won on the cross. Never has anyone suffered a more grievous loss than he, stripped of all human comforts and dignity, hanging in shame, all the blame of human sin heaped upon him, no refuge in the love of his father, as his father turns his anger upon Christ as a sin-bearer. But out of that grievous loss, he secured a glorious gain, you know, think of what was lost when Satan plundered Adam in the garden. The fellowship that humanity had with God. Peace and joy and innocence and uh, happiness and righteousness and hope and, and life itself. But Christ has recovered all of that for his people. Nothing of ours is lacking, either small or great. Anything which Satan has taken from us, Christ has recovered all. Now, brothers and sisters, we can take this and we can apply it to ourselves, whatever it is that we're grieving over. If we belong to Christ, then whatever has been lost to sin and to Satan and to life in this fallen world, Christ has recovered for you. Loved ones that we've lost to death, a clear conscience that we've lost to temptation, a health that we've lost to the ravages of disease opportunities that we've lost to our own laziness a peace that we've lost to our folly whatever it is that sin has done to us whatever it is we've lost because of sin christ has recovered for us and he will restore it to us when he comes to renew all things remember those words from the prophet joel i will restore to you the years that the locusts has eaten then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Christ recovers all. But he also recovers more than what was lost. Think of the security that we have in Christ that Adam never knew. Remember Adam in the garden, he was in a state of innocence, but he was still able to sin, and he did. He stood alone. It was his responsibility to obey. 
and he failed. But in Christ, we now have a security that Adam never had. He's taken responsibility for our obedience and he's succeeded. And once in him, we are secure forever. In this life, we still sin, we still fall, we'll still be grieved, but nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We're not going to live in an Eden from which there's a possibility of being evicted, but we're going to live with Christ in the new Jerusalem, which he's bringing down to a renewed earth. And when we're glorified in Christ, then sin will become impossible. Can you imagine that? Sin is the enemy which makes raids on us every day. But in glory, we'll have no more memory of sin. We'll have to look in the history books to recall what sin was. And reading about sin will will baffle us. We won't be able to understand it. That is the glorious gain that Christ has brought out of the grievous loss that he suffered for us on the cross. That is the glorious gain that we will know, despite the grievous losses that we experience because of sin. And just briefly, our final point. Christ gives help today to those who trust his promises and obey his word. You know, it was scarcely possible to imagine a more overwhelming situation than David faced at the beginning of this chapter. And yet there was help available. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You know, sometimes the enormity of our situation keeps us from praying. We just don't know where to start. Sometimes a sense of guilt keeps us from praying. We might say, well, I'm responsible for this situation. Uh, Why should God help me when it's my fault? Sometimes we're right and we do bear a sense of uh, sharing the blame. Other times Satan will lay false guilt upon us. But whatever the situation, we should come near to God. We see David seeking a word from the Lord. He had the help of the priest with his uh, ephod, which was something like an apron. Uh, a linen apron that the, the high priest wore, and in some way uh, it was used by the Lord to reveal his will. But we now have the full revelation of God in Scripture, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to open Scripture to us. We have Christ, our great high priest, interceding for us. And the Lord gave David a command and a promise. In answer to David's question, shall I go after them? God commanded David to pursue. And he promised that you shall overtake them and without fail recover all. And in response, David believed the promise and he obeyed the commands. And it was in David's obedience, his simple obedience, that God acted and brought about the remarkable victory. David and his men as it were, did nothing out of the ordinary. They just did what soldiers did. They pursued their enemies. They went after them with their sword. But faithful to his word, in that ordinary obedience, God worked something extraordinary. He kept them going when they were beyond the limits of their strength. And he brought about the defeat of their enemies. 
ordinary, weak people, believing the promises of God, obeying the commands of God, that is how Christ gives victory to his people over their enemies. And so it is for us. We have the promises of God. We have the commands of Christ. And we should move forward in the ordinary work of Christian obedience. It will often be in weakness when we're at the limits of our strength. But we have Christ's promise. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's command to us is to pursue. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And his promise to us is that we shall be holy and without blame before him in love. So this is God's chosen way. Using the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And this is how Christ has chosen to accomplish his ultimate victory, which we see here previewed for us in David's defeat of the Amalekites.